You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Doing It for Bartolo. My name is June Lee. Uh, on the show this week, we have Jason Stark of ESPN. Jason is a senior baseball writer over at the Four Letter Network, and uh, he shed a lot of wisdom this week. Uh, Jason was an, a fantastic guest. I know you guys are really going to enjoy the conversation that I had with him. Uh, Jason kind of talked a lot about his uh, his rise, uh, just kind of the, the trajectory of his of his career. Uh, you know how he kind of found his niche uh, within baseball writing. And uh, the uh, the ever changing landscape of sports journalism, especially in the age of the internet and Twitter and whatnot, and we had a, a great discussion. He also gave some really great anecdotes about uh, you know learning a lot from Peter Gammons, who the, the absolute living legend. Uh, so uh, I know you guys are going to in- enjoy the uh, the conversation I have with Jason. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, uh, welcome. Uh, Please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts and leave us a rating on iTunes as well. It really does uh, help us get the word out and uh, share with a friend. Tell a friend about it if you enjoy this conversation. Uh, you can also follow the show on Twitter at BartoloPod uh, as well. And I uh, think, think that's about it in terms of housekeeping. So uh, without further ado, this is uh, Jason Stark of ESPN. I hope you guys enjoy. You are a melody, I hear you all the time, it really gets to me, it's always on my mind, you are my favorite Alright, so today on the show we have Jason Stark of ESPN. Jason, how are you doing? June, I am doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I just finished up a couple of exams, so things are things are getting easier on my end. <laughs> Yeah, no, nothing like that feeling. Yeah. Um, so you're down in spring training right now, and obviously you cover baseball for, for ESPN, but you grew up in Philadelphia? I certainly did. So in Philly, obviously a big, big sports town, but what got you into baseball and sports, and what got you? What kind of sparked your interest in sports writing? You, you, you know, June, uh, I am one of those people, one of those lucky people in the world who's doing exactly what I always dreamed of doing. It's incredible. Um, you know, I, I wrote about this in my Wild Pitches book, but it is a true story. There's a, there's a picture hanging on my wall in my office, and it shows me and my sister walking home from school. I'm in fifth grade. She's in fourth grade. And uh, underneath the picture, it has a little composition that she wrote for her class in fourth grade. And it says something to the effect of, if you ever want to know anything about baseball, you should ask my brother. And <laughs> I'm, it, this is, it's all crazy to look back on now, but I, I used to go to games as a kid, bring my binoculars, train my binoculars on the press box and try to figure out what everybody was doing up there. I, I knew I wasn't going to play, but I, I wanted to be one of the sports writers doing what they did. Uh, always loved baseball, always loved sports, loved to write. My mom was a writer. Um, she had a, a, a little time in the newspaper business, so she had uh, reporter friends. Just thought it would be the coolest thing ever, and now I'm living the dream, buddy. Uh-huh. I mean, so did you grow up a Phillies fan? I did grow up a Phillies fan. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, like once I began to cover the Phillies, I ceased to be a fan, but 
was a fan of all the Philadelphia teams growing up. That's just what you do. Uh, it's certainly what people do in Philadelphia. As you know, they're a little bit into the sports scene there. <laughs> yeah, and I think Philadelphia, I have a couple of friends from Philly at school, and there seems to be, it's very similar to Boston, I think. Uh, there's a very unique sports culture around around the city. Where do you think that kind of stems from? <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. Um, sports is a, to, to me, sports is the great unifying force in American life. Um, and in towns like Boston and Philadelphia, and obviously there, there are others, um, you know, where people disagree about all sorts of stuff all day long, Sports is the one force that brings everybody together. Um, you know, men and women and kids and old timers, uh, they all care about it. And it makes it fun to be there when times are good, which they're not that often, by the way, <laughs> not like where you live. <laughs> and it, it, you know, and it made it a really fun place to work back when I was in the newspaper business. Um, and, you know, then even after I left the Philadelphia Inquirer and went to work at ESPN, I like I didn't stop being a Philadelphian. And you know, back when the Phillies won the World Series in 2008, I you know, I didn't set out to write a book on that team. But when you know they wound up obviously having one of those years that people talk about and care about, and because I'm a Philadelphian, I, you know, I, I I think I was able to to capture kind of what that team and what that season meant to Philadelphians in a way maybe that other people didn't it's because of, you know, my, my whole background in life. Not that I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a Phillies fan, but I, you know, I have a lot of Phillies fans all around me and I do had, I, I had that history and I understood what it meant to have 25 years of no team winning. And then finally somebody, showing a whole generation what that felt like. And so I, you know, I took my daughter to the parade a couple of days after the world series and uh, we, it was hard to get there. It was hard to get back. So we were on the subway trying to figure out where the heck our car was. And a guy recognized me. Right. And he came up to me on the subway and hugged me. And he thanked me for telling the story, the way Philadelphians see it, not the way the rest of the world sees Philadelphia. And, you know, I, we started talking about it afterwards, and I thought, you know what, there's, there's something here. There's a book here. And uh, that's really the story of kind of how that book came about. And I, I know you didn't ask a story about me. I, I asked a question about me, but I'm just trying to give you a little, uh, little glimpse into the way sports changes people's lives and, and in towns like ours. I think the people that don't, get it, who aren't sports fans, think that sports is just some little diversion, some fun thing that people do is kind of a hobby, just watch sports. But in fact, sports is a life-changing event for millions of people. And when a team wins, a team wins a title, and you know, you've, again, you've had a lot more experience with this than Philadelphians have had. Um, I, I looked around at that parade and I thought there's nowhere else in your life where 2 million people or a million people or however many it was all arrive, show up at the same place and have the same bonding emotion. 
Like that doesn't happen in America anymore, right? It's a really polarized world we live in. But sports changes that. Sports transcends that. And that's the beauty of it. And in towns that have that heartbeat, have that passion for sports, you see it. Philadelphia is one of those towns. It's, it's the best part of living there. Was there any particular, you know, Phillies team or a particular player that got you kind of hooked to, to you know, feeling that connection to Philadelphia sports? No, not, I, I would say not really. Um, I just was, I don't know, it's funny, I didn't grow up in a, in a house full of sports fans. My, my dad, he, you know, he liked sports okay, but he was not a big, big fan. He played catch with me and, you know, he, he did the stuff that dads do, but um, like he'd see me watching games on TV and he, he'd kid me and say, I saw this game 30 years ago, <laughs> you know, but, um, my mom really came to love sports. My sister you know, just kind of a very run of the mill sports fan. And so how this happened to me, I really have no idea, but there really was no one event that I could pinpoint, no one team, no one player just caught the fever just like a lot of people do and the rest is history mm -hmm. was there was there i mean what kind of sparked that interest in, in sports writing because i mean you clearly have a, a very uh deep connection to to philadelphia and the sports there but what was it about sports writing that got you interested uh in it well as i said my mom was a writer terrific writer uh and she did work uh, briefly at a newspaper in philadelphia a couple of years and so she did, you know, she had a lot of newspaper friends and I'm sure that had an influence on me, but, um, I, you know, also when you grow up in a town with great sports writing and great sports writers, I think it makes you conscious of what that is. It, it certainly did with me. Uh, I don't, you know, I used to, like I started to write to Stan Hockman and he would actually write back, you know, that kind of thing. And, People like that were big influences on me, and I I didn't just read them, I studied them. You know, I wanted to I wanted to really think about what made them such good writers and why their stories entertained and informed me the way they did. And that's hey, when I when I got to Boston, I used to do that with Peter Gammons too. But I just always had an appreciation for great writing and great sports writing. You know, we get to do things when we write sports that people don't often get to do in other other walks of life in journalism. You know, you can have fun writing sports. You can write about all kinds of uh, wacky, goofy stuff. You can write about numbers. But there's also all these great human stories, and that's really why we care about sports. And I just realized that, that, that when you get to... That, that sports writers in general, and baseball writers in particular, had an opportunity to do stuff, tell stories that not everybody got to do. And so I just slowly kind of gravitated in that direction well i mean when you were looking at some of these legendary sports writers what were the things you were taking away from uh from their writing and, they, and what, what made them great they, they were funny uh they were you know right they wrote a lot of them wrote really funny laugh out loud stuff at times uh, i mean stan hockman could make you laugh sandy grady uh, you know if you people haven't read sandy grady if they're not aware of sandy grady but there was a time sandy grady was maybe the greatest sports columnist in America. And he write tremendous, thoughtful stuff, but also really funny, <laughs> funny columns at times. He'd get people to say funny things. And I thought, I, that's what I want to do. You know, I mean, look, I, I know that it didn't end well for Bill Conlon, 
But Bill Connell was a great writer in his time and a great baseball writer. And it was it was always when you when you read a a, a piece by Bill Connell, it was it, it could contain history, it could contain comedy, it could contain all kinds of stuff um, that you didn't see coming. And so I, it, it's just hard for me to name one great Philadelphia sports writer because there were so many of them who did so many great things, but I, I, it was entertaining to read them. I couldn't wait to to get the newspaper and read it every day. And, you know, because I live in a house where my mom loved writing too, and she loved newspapers, we would get the Inquirer, we would get the the, the, the old Philadelphia Bulletin. Um, we wouldn't, we didn't have the daily news delivered, but we'd always look for opportunities to, to grab that. And it was, you know, it was just something that uh, we cared about and talked about. And it was a, it was, it was a thing in my house to, to read the great writers of Philadelphia. And so I, you know, again, I caught that fever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like from, from my vantage point that it, that you were really kind of starting to develop your voice as to you and your, your perspective on, on baseball at an early age, would you, I mean, how did you, at what point did you kind of figure out that sports journalism was what you wanted to do? And, uh, how did you kind of figure out what, what your perspective was, what your, what, what the unique thing that you brought to the table was? Well, um, you know, I, there was a brief period in my life. I, I went to Syracuse, and, uh, you know, I was going to be, I was going to come out of sports Syracuse and be one of the, you know, just join the parade of Syracuse sports media types. Right. And I actually had a little detour because I wound up being the news editor at the daily orange. And I, you know, I thought to myself, well, maybe I should do something more serious than cover sports. And so I, there was a brief time, uh, about a year and a half after I got out college, I worked in Providence, at the Providence Journal, and I covered news. And I, you know, I had a good time. I just had this feeling like nobody read any of it. Nobody really cared about it the way they care about sports. And you know, I wrote enough sports in, in college and even at, even at my high school paper and freelanced and, and knew how people reacted to sports stories. And so there was an opening at you know, the Providence Journal for a sports writer. I applied, I got it. And then I just, you know, I had a chance to do a million different things and write about every sport under the sun. But I realized really early on that what I'd always wanted to do is what I wanted to spend my life doing. And that was writing about baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, just ha- I always felt like I had, a, had the ability to capture the rhythms of it for whatever reason. Uh, I love numbers, and I've always been able to, to find ways to use numbers in baseball stories. And you had a lot of freedom because they played every day, and you know you had a lot of access to players and, and interesting people and funny people. And I'd always try to find those funny people, and so I became, you know, I became the the baseball writer that wrote about all the funny stuff, the wacky stuff that took numbers and turned them upside down, and and got a lot of mileage out of them. And it's not like all I do, it's not all I've done, but baseball ha- you know, has so many dimensions to it that people care about all of that. And my mom used to always say to me that I should write a book, and I should call it, I never saw that before. Because that's kind of my thing, right? You know, you, something happens in a game, and you say to yourself, 
wow, when's the last time that happened? And the next thing you know, you know, it hadn't happened since the 1898 Cleveland Spiders or whatever. And mm-hmm. that's just kind of the fun thing about baseball. It, you know, there's just uh-huh. so many unpredictable twists and turns. I love every one of them. And I just kind of made it one of my passions to, to try to capture that and people really care about it, respond to it. It's awesome. We'll get back to Jason in just a second. First, a word from our friends over at SeatGeek. Uh, with baseball season coming up, I know we've all been really frustrated before trying to get tickets to that big game. Uh, and most sites make it really, really complicated and jack up uh, the prices by sneaking in these huge fees at checkout. That's why everybody needs to go out and check out SeatGeek. They've really made it a lot easier to buy and sell tickets to sports and concerts. Uh, with baseball season coming up, you want to make sure that you uh, book your tickets in order to have that nice day at the ballpark this summer. Uh, SeatGeek makes it really, really easy and takes out all the work and hassle for shopping for tickets. They pull all the available tickets on other sites into one place so you can save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming games and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every single ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on its value, so you can immediately check out whether or not the ticket is underpriced. Before you buy, you can also check out SeatGeek's detailed maps in order to see the view from your seat before you even step into the ballpark. Best of all, SeatGeek is always upfront and honest about the price, and unlike StubHub, SeatGeek is able to show you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkout. Listeners to the Bartolo Pod can list, can get $20 off uh, their first SeatGeek purchase. In order to do that, make sure to download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and add, click add a promo code, and enter the promo code BARTOLO. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you made your first ticket purchase, and they're sponsoring the podcast, they're supporting the show. Please make sure to go out and support SeatGeek, guys. Uh, would really, really appreciate it. Uh, make sure to download the free SeatGeek app today, and enter the c- promo code BARTOLO. How do you think your your time in news shaped how you view sports? Because I th- I think the way people think about hard news, uh, you know, having worked on this new newspaper and being pretty heavily involved in this, in the news coverage uh, there right now, um, I think there's a different perspective that you have on stories when you're uh, looking at crime stories and things going on around the school administration and stuff. Uh, did yeah, that, did that I think sh- that's... did you sh- did that shape at all how you l- look at sports? I, I do think that's true to some extent, and I. You know, I, I was able to find some fun stuff to write about when I was on news side, too. But, you, you know, you do find yourself, when you cover news, in uncomfortable positions. Right. And, you know, I, I, there were times, you know, people would die, and I'd have to, you know, talk to the families. And that was really difficult. I covered politics in towns I didn't grow up in, didn't know a, a lot about. And, you know, you, you, you had to find a way to connect with politicians and um, people who cared about all sorts of different issues, uh, educators. You, you, you wind up in situations when you are in the quote-unquote news business, that, and it teaches you how to navigate those situations and to be curious about things that you otherwise might not be and to ask the right questions and, and write the right stories there's, there's no doubt that I, you know, I, I would not be I, I, able to, to handle some of the situations that you find yourself in covering sports without that news background. Mm-hmm. I, I know that that's true. And yet, it's a funny thing, June. Um, you know, when you're on the baseball beat, it's incredible, first of all, how much copy you turn out, right? How many yeah. words you write uh-huh. and how many Especially with blogs different... Today. 
oh man. Well, I mean, I you know, I, when I was in the newspaper business, it was just before all that exploded. But still, there's just there's so much. There's so because you know they play every day that uh, those pregame notes, um, just trying to find those angles, find those stories, find ways to tell them. Um, and you know, stuff happens when you're covering a sporting event where, you know, you spent the whole night crafting a story about one thing and then the closer comes in and gives up a three run bomb and everything changes and the meaning of that game changes and the story changes and you have what? 10 minutes to tell it sometimes less. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, we talk about this on the beat. If you could, if you could handle the stuff that would come flying at you on the baseball beat, you can do anything in the in journalism, in the writing business, in the media business, because the world is constantly changing in about as unpredictable way as you could ever imagine. And because it does, I feel like people who cover baseball. Um, who write about baseball, who are who cover the the news and the stories and the twists and turns of baseball, they could teach lessons to people on the news beat too. It's really interesting. Right? Like every experience that you have shapes what you do and mm -hmm. and who you are and what you are. And so I, I think both of those experiences help me become the the writer that I am. So when you when when you took that when you got that job with the Providence Journal as the sports writer after coming over from the news side, what were the kind of things you were covering back then? I covered everything. You know, I was general assignment. I you know oh. I did get to write a lot of baseball. Uh, we had two newspapers at, at the time. There's mm -hmm. still the Providence Evening Bulletin, and so um, because there was an afternoon paper and a morning paper, two or three people would go to every Red Sox home game and some road games, and so. You know, I did get the opportunity to do that a lot. But, I, you know, I covered a lot of college basketball. I covered college football. In Rhode Island, people care about, you know, all the New England pro sports, but they also care about Providence College and, and Brown and URI. And uh, they care about smaller sports. I got to write about a lot of, you know, small sports um, off the beaten track. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I... I really loved doing all of that. I would say my two favorite sports to write about and hate to care about now are college basketball and baseball. Both great storytellers kind of sports. Mm -hmm. When when you were a young sports writer, you know, still learning the the ropes of things. One of the questions I like to ask is just what was one of the one of, what was one of the mistakes that you made as a young writer, and what did you kind of take away from that? Uh, the first game I ever covered was a. Uh, a Bryant University, Bryant College, sorry, basketball game. And, you know, I, like, I, I covered some Syracuse basketball uh, in my time at Syracuse and, you know, written columns off games. But, you know, I never felt quite that same feeling that I felt when that, that Bryant College game was over. And I went to, that, to the locker room and realized – how little I knew <laughs> about the, the game I was covering, the team I was covering, and the story I needed to tell, the questions I needed to ask. And I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I have no idea how that story read. I don't, I didn't save it, but I came away from that learning a great lesson, and that is that preparation 
is the essence of what we do in the media. That you're, you know, you're covering these events, telling these stories to people who care about them deeply. You know, I don't know how many Bryant College basketball fans there are. It's a lot less than there are, say, Celtics fans, right? Mm -hmm. But the people who read that story, they knew everything they needed to know about Bryant College, and they knew a lot more about it than me. And I always thought, I'm never going to let this happen again. And I'm a, like, I am a preparation freak now. Um, you know, every day in spring training, for example, uh, finish the day's work, whatever it may be, you know, breathe for an hour, hour and a half, whatever it is, you know, go to dinner. And then that, at night, think about, all right, what's tomorrow? What am I going to do tomorrow? Um, where am I going? Uh, what, you know, what's, what's everything that I need to know and think about that team? Um, when I appear on baseball tonight, you know, that's a live television show and we don't have time to research anything when the games are going on, right? And these stories are, are, are unfolding while we're on the air. So you have to be ready before you ever walk onto that set and you have to have thought through the plot lines, potential plot lines of every game. When you're a newspaper beat writer and you go to the park, you have to have a game plan every single day when you show up and you step into that clubhouse and you sit down to write. This is, and these, that, that's a lesson I learned the very first story I ever wrote in the newspaper business. And I'll, I'll never forget it. Hopefully somebody out there listening to this will, will hear it and think, I need to do more of it because I, I, I learned a lot just from making that mistake that day. Uh-huh. So, I mean, so you classify yourself as a, as a preparation freak. What is your daily, what is, what does the daily schedule look like for, for Jason Stark? Well, no day is exactly the same, but I'll just give you an idea of the stuff that I do to, to force myself to pay attention to every game and every team. Right, during this season, the uh, first thing I do when I wake up every morning is to watch video. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've recorded every baseball tonight for the last 15 years. And I, you know, I, first thing I do in the morning is watch. Uh, there, there are times I will also watch MLB Network. There are times I'll watch something, uh, I'll particularly go out and seek out something on the Internet because I need to see a play. I need to see how a, how a guy pitched or looked. Um, and that's the first thing I do. And then there's just this whole baseline of um, scouring the internet. I keep a daily log book of things that interest me every single day of the season. Uh, it could be potential stories to write. It could be potential um, stuff to talk about on TV. It could be notes to look up. Every single day I do that. Uh, I keep three stat books every day. I keep a day-by-day book in every team so I know exactly how every team did last night, whether they're hot, whether they're cold, what the record is, who the winning pitcher was, who the losing pitcher was, who saved the game, um, whether they're on a winning streak or a losing streak. Uh, I keep a, a, a starting pitcher log for every single team. Uh, believe in that. So, you know, if I'm on the radio and somebody starts asking me about the, the rotation of the Brewers, I know it. I, you know, I'm writing, I'm writing it down every single night. It, 
it takes a lot of time to do that. But here's my theory about it. You get out of this stuff whatever you're willing to put into it. Mm -hmm. So when people say to me, couldn't you just find that stuff on the Internet? Yeah, you can. But if I, if I have to write down what happened in the Padres game last night, it makes me look at their box score. It makes me record the, you know, the, the, the basic storyline of that game. And by writing it down, it kind of burns it into my brain. I don't know how to explain that, but there is something about writing it down. I, when I was at Syracuse, I had a professor who, told, who said to us, when you're interviewing somebody, I don't see the reason why you wouldn't write down everything. You know, you, some people write down just a little, some stuff, a few little things. Why not write down all of it? It'll make you more aware of what's being said. And you can go back and find that something you thought wasn't that interesting actually was really interesting. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into all of that every day, but that's how my day begins. And then, you know, the rest of it just kind of depends on what I'm working on, whether I'm going to a game, whether I'm not, whether I'm home, whether I'm away, whether I'm in Bristol. Where, you know, there's a lot of different variables, variables, but I do all kinds of crazy stuff just to force myself to, to, to keep up on every single team. I must be a nutcase, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's, I think it's super fascinating. Um, just because I, you know, I'm someone who who's grown up in the age of the internet. I I don't know sports journalism without Twitter and uh, and Baseball Reference and having all this stuff just kind of at the tip of my fingertips. And so yeah, it's great having that sort of process, I guess, into into watching baseball is something that is is very different for me. Uh, and I think that's I think it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, how did you? How did you see that that preparation process evolved as you you know kind of gained more and more experience? Uh, I mean, what, I, I, was that something that you had when you uh, first started as a beat writer with uh, for the Inquirer? Yeah, got it. Um, even before that, even when I uh, before I got to the Inquirer and I was you know covering some Red Sox games and guys like Gammons kept a day, day by day book and um, you know guys that I really respected the most on that beat all seemed to do it. So I started doing it. And when you're a beat writer, it's a little different kind of book. But, you know, I was always looking for things to make myself pay attention. Even then, it just kind of evolved that when I stopped being a beat writer, I stopped keeping that kind of book. And I started keeping these other books, again, to make, to make me pay attention. And, you know, it's, I know it sounds ridiculous, right? But I just want you to think about it. If if it's important that I know what all 30 teams did last night, um, I mean, for example, right, I might hear the score of the Marlins game, but if I, you know, it could go zipping through my head real quick, but when I have to write it down, write down that score, and I have to write down, uh, who the winning pitcher was, and uh, when I have to write down what their record is, when I have to write down, whoa, they've lost six in a row. Um, you know, I have a whole different level of understanding of how that game fit into the context of their season than I would if I just kind of heard the score in Sports Center or sort of zip across the bottom line or you know, checked it on my phone. So that's really my theory is that I, I just want to feel like no game throughout the season slips by me. Mm -hmm. And that's that's why I do what I do. And you know, at the end of the year, like I write these 
big year-end columns, the strange but true feats of the year, uh, those columns are a product of paying attention every day to every game. And people say, wow, how do you get that stuff? How do you find that stuff? How do you keep track of that stuff? I start opening day, and I never stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many games are you watching every single day? I mean, again, every day is different, but right. because I watch so much video, I feel like I have watched a chunk of every single game, you know, and that's, I pride myself on that. And, you know, hey, if Buster and I are talking on the podcast at 8.30 in the morning and he brings up something that happened in the Mariners game, uh, I'm aware of it, right? And it's, that's because I put in the time. So that's just kind of what you do, right? It's, look, the six months when I'm not keeping the book and I'm not watching the video, I can't, I can't say I wish I was. can't say I miss it. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it is a chunk of time out of your out of your day and out of your life that uh, it's it's nice to not be a slave to it. But I understand the importance of doing it, and so I keep on doing it. Mm-hmm. When you became a beat writer with the Inquirer uh, and you were covering the Phillies, this was uh, 1979, according to your Wikipedia page. Um, You're right. Uh, what I mean, what were what what was beat writing like back then? Just as someone who is not, you know, I, I mean, for beat writing for me is like you just see five blogs a day on Twitter, and that's how you consume your content. How was it different back then for you? Well, um, there was there was no blogging, but uh, there were. It was extremely competitive. There were six newspapers covering the team then, and I mean every all, all six. All the five of the uh, the beat writers that I competed with were extremely talented, and you know, in, in some cases, just went on to make incredible impacts in the business in all sorts of ways. And so, you, you know, you had. And I, I think it's safe to say that it may even have been more competitive in its own way than that it is now it's that's there's a competition now but it's it's more like a race to be first with something by 30 seconds mm-hmm. before the next person gets it and you know it, back in an age before the internet <laughs> when you got a story you know you had to sit on it and protect it all day long all night long and pray nobody else would get it mm-hmm. uh it seems bizarre now to think about it we live in such a 24 7 world but it was it was excruciating. It was excruciating every morning to wake up and look at all the other papers and, and see what they had that you didn't have. Or it was really rewarding to realize you had something they didn't have. Um, there were still, you know, I, again, because Peter Gammons was such a huge influence on me, uh, getting to know him uh, in New England and, and reading him so religiously and studying him. You know, I came into it wanting to do things that other people weren't doing. You know, I, I wanted to write those big, fun notebooks um, that were newsy, but also had numbers and fun quotes and uh, cultural references. And uh, and that took a lot, you know, it it was different. And so not everybody was accepting of it. Um, Players sometimes didn't react well to it. There were a lot of, a lot of issues trying to do it that way, but, you know, that's kind of where I felt like the business was going, and I wanted to go there, if not first, certainly one of the first. Um, 
and you know we had many additions back in that time mm-hmm. too and so we had an addition that would come out around dinner time that you have to you know be a lot of days in spring training i i you know i have to file so early and uh you know I, like you had to even be careful about what was in that early piece that you wrote just so the competition wouldn't get onto it and get it too right mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, it, it was a different world, but a, a, a very challenging um, and very competitive world. I'm sure you've probably heard stories like this from uh, other people that you've interviewed on this podcast, but um, incredible to look back on it now. Mm-hmm. So how did you see the, the beat writing stuff change? Uh, you know, you got to ESPN in 2000, but from the time you started as a beat writer to until then, how did you see the, the industry change in that in that time span? Well, you know, I've uh, obviously uh, the internet changed things dramatically. Uh, the explosion of ESPN and cable and sports on TV and every single game on TV changed things dramatically. And um, and sports writers weren't just sports writers anymore. Um, you know, we did a lot of radio and we did a lot of TV. And, uh, you know, I've often kidded Peter that, you know, he made my whole life possible. Like all the stuff that I do now and a lot of us do, he did first and, you know, did better than any of us. And that that was really the big change I, that I, I think happened in a lot of ways is that I realized that if you're growing up now, it's if you just grow up thinking you're going to be a writer, you're just going to type for a living, you're just going to write stories about this stuff, you're not preparing yourself for this world. Because now we tell the story so many different ways. And, you know, when I was still, you know, at the Inquirer in the in the 90s, that meant you were writing, but it was also radio and TV. But then, obviously, since I've gotten to ESPN, it's incredible all the different ways we disseminate information uh, and still do because people don't get their information anymore just by i mean the, I mean, the newspaper business is living proof of this just by waiting for that newspaper to drop on their doorstep in the morning that's you know how uh, ancient history is that and sadly enough and so you know you've got to write stories and you've got to write blogs and you've got to write columns and you've got to tweet and you've got to post stuff on Facebook and we now have the you know that our whole ESPN now feed and we're constantly posting stuff on that we do podcasts and we're doing video blogs and we're 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 streaming video we're posting video uh, I mean just the world is evolving so mm-hmm. fast because it has to yeah and the diversification of how many different forms of media there were and how people used them and got information just changed so fast as, you know, as we got into the late nineties and into the 21st century and mm-hmm. you're seeing it now. It's fasten that seatbelt, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I mean, you've, you mentioned Pete, Peter Gammons and, and Buster talked about this when he came onto the podcast as well, but you know, Peter, obviously there's a, there's a Gammons generation of sports writers where you know he was kind of the, the direct influence of a lot of people becoming sports writers, both you know in Boston and, and nationally. Once he got to ESPN, uh, having worked with Peter, and you know, I, I think you know as someone as a young writer who's who's met Peter on a couple of occasions, there's 
every interaction with him is incredibly interesting for a variety of reasons. Um, do you have yeah, any? Right. Do you have any good uh, Peter Gammon stories? <laughs> well, um, I could, I could, I could tell stories, but I, let me just try to explain what Peter means to me and meant to me when I was. I just started out covering the Phillies. You know, like I, I, I knew Peter in, in Boston, and Peter was, a, you know, a tremendously generous, welcoming guy who was always willing to, to share what he knew and, and, and interact with, with young guys like me, right? But all right, I got to Philadelphia, and Peter made me feel like I was good at this. You know, that I, I knew stuff, and I saw stuff, and I told stories that other people didn't. And we spent so much time on the phone for so many years that Peter, you know, when he won the Spink Award and he gave his Hall of Fame induction speech, actually said during his Hall of Fame speech, he, he was pretty sure he'd spent more time talking to me than his wife. <laughs> you know, <laughs> over the over the years, and uh, here's the sad part: it might be true. <laughs> and uh, that's you know that's really the like the best story I could tell about Peter is that Peter always, not just for me, Jason Stark, but for so many young people coming up in the business, Peter always made us feel like. We, our opinions, our work, um, our knowledge mattered just as much as his. And what a gift, you know, to just be that that welcoming to people. Um, I, I'll, I'll never forget it. And then, you know, that, to, to go from being someone who knew Peter on that level for so many years to then working with him so closely for such a long time. It's the coolest thing that ever happened to me in my career. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, what was that? You know, having you know, having looked up to to Peter for a really long time, and then having to the opportunity to work with him. What was that like for you? It was awesome because Peter was a great teammate, and um, you know, we would we would talk all the time, and you know, like I. <laughs> I actually, you know, like we go to the winter meetings, right? And Peter would be, there's nothing like Peter Gammons at the winter meetings in the SA day. Nothing sure. like that experience, sure. right? Uh, just how he would know everybody and he'd know everything. But like Peter would forget to eat. <laughs> I would say to him, Peter, we're going to eat now. You're going to stop what you're doing. We're going to eat now. Or Peter would get so caught up in, you know, all the people that he that he had to talk to uh, before he could he could write or file a report. I would say, hey Peter, there's I'm hearing this. Here's the deal, man. You are going to break this story, <laughs> okay? Like I give him like, I give him these pep talks and get him energized because that's what he always did for me. Uh-huh. You know, he he like he'd call me and he'd say, hey, what do you know about this? And we would like devise strategy for the day for you know for reporting different stories and. It was tremendous to have a teammate like that and, and to have him be such a giant in the field, but to, to make me feel like I could help him, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, it's like when you're on that, uh, you're on that 
Dodger staff with Clayton Kershaw. You know, you you know that Clayton Kershaw is on your staff, but he makes you feel like Zach Greinke is just as great as him, right? Mm-hmm. And I was not as great as Peter Gavins, man. Who who was? Nobody was. But Peter always made me feel like I was something special, and that for him to work with me was special. And that's the, the you know that's the greatest takeaway I'll ever have of working with him. What what if, what is the the biggest takeaway from what I mean? What is what is thing you the thing you've learned um, from him that's been the most valuable to you? Um, wow, I don't know that it's just one thing because as I said, Peter made my whole life possible. Or just as many things as as, as you can but, list. <laughs> but you know, all right. Well, I'll tell you one really great lesson too, and that is that to really be good at this, you have to build relationships so many people and I realized really that's what reporting is mm-hmm. it's just building relationships building trust to the point where you know when you talk to somebody and they tell you something you trust that it's true and when they talk to you they trust you that if they tell you things you're going to communicate them correctly properly and you know Peter's the the master at that How, you know like the I've been at a Cape League game with Peter. I've been at the winter meetings with Peter. I've been at the World Series with Peter. Peter knows everybody. <laughs> everybody knows Peter. And I just when you think, wow, I know a lot of people in the game, you realize there are 50 people in this room that I don't know, and Peter knows every one of them. And so, I mean, that's another great lesson for anybody who wants to be a reporter. You know, build those relationships. And I, I'll tell you a story that I've, I've, I've told people coming up in the business that they every, it seems to really resonate. There was a year, I couldn't even tell you when this was, but um, I was working at ESPN. Uh, the trade deadline was getting close. And, you know, you spend your whole day like, chasing all this stuff. And now it gets to be 7 o'clock, and, you know, games are starting in the East. And so it's like kind of safe to take a break and watch baseball. So I left my office, came downstairs, had some dinner, sitting, sitting on my sofa watching baseball games. My daughter, who actually now works in baseball herself, was sitting there with me. And so, uh, you know, now it gets to be like 10 o'clock, 10.15, and those games are starting to end, the first wave of games. And I get a call from a really good source of mine, and he says, hey, I, I got something for you to chase. And he tells me about you know, a team that's trying to arrange a three-team deal because they need to move this player and they're having trouble doing it. And so they're calling around looking for the third team. And, you know, so I, we have this conversation and I hang up and she says to me, what was that? And so I told her kind of what the, what this guy had told me. And she, she asked me this question. She said, Dad, why do people tell you stuff? <laughs> I thought, what a great question. Never really thought about it. And the reason is because I've spent my my whole life, my whole career, building these relationships with different people to the point where when something like that happens, this guy felt like, uh, you know, Jason should know this. He might be able to find out something that would help me, help my team, help us put the pieces together. And um, I'm assuming that's why he told me, because he trusted me, because he liked me, and because he thought, you know, I might dig up some information that, might help his team. I don't know. I mean, that's, he didn't tell me that, but it really made me think of that, that building relationships is the essence 
of what we do, and it's the foundation of all reporting. And it's, you know, it's one of the, I've come to think of it as one of the fun, the most fun parts of the job. And I really learned that because I worked with Peter Gammons mm-hmm. and I saw how he did it. Uh-huh. I think I think just kind of the idea of information as kind of a, a commodity as a reporter is really interesting, and uh, I think that's especially true nowadays with Twitter when you know every piece of information is tweeted out and people are saying sources say this, sources say that, uh, and you know and, and people you know people are like oh this person had this first blah 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 blah. Um, how has how has the internet and as, as you know, as as a as a guy who's been in the industry for a while, you know, you've really embraced uh, the internet and Twitter. Um, how have you kind of seen uh, the the industry? You know, just kind of as a, as a reporter, seen seen uh, the influence of Twitter influence your reporting. Uh, Twitter is a huge part of it now, and you know, it's funny. I've 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 seen people uh, even in in my business who don't tweet, don't believe in tweeting, don't monitor Twitter, uh, think it's dangerous or whatever. And look, bad stuff can happen if you tweet irresponsibly, if you tweet stupidly, you know, but you know, all social media has become an awesome and essential tool in what we do. Uh, I mentioned my daughter works in baseball. My daughter, Hallie, who went to Syracuse, uh, she's now a, uh, she now works for MLB advanced media. She's a social media specialist. Right. And, um, so she's, I mean, look, she's taught me a lot too, but I, you know, I, I really see the power of it firsthand. The one thing that I worry about is that, you know, we're basically doing play by play of the entire world in real time, 24, seven, 365. It's a leap year to 366. <laughs> and that is impossible, right? It cannot be done. Um, and, you know, one of the things that has, be, that has made our jobs more difficult, I think, uh, is a, largely a social media phenomenon. And that is that, you know, that, that, that rush, that passion, to do play-by-play of every story is not always productive and not often accurate. And so if we're going to do play-by-play of every trade discussion and every free agent negotiation and every story as it develops in the world, um, it's, some of it's going to be wrong, and that's a problem. And the other part of it is it's causing us to wear out these people who give us the information. You know, I had a general manager uh, this winter give me this rundown about how, you know, here's the way you guys work. Okay, we're talking to X player, and I'll get, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll have 50 tweets from you guys. Is it true you're talking to this player? Then somebody will say, get nearing agreement with this player. I'll get a hundred texts from you guys saying, can you confirm <laughs> that you're nearing agreement with this player? <laughs> then somebody, somebody will, will re, somebody will report. Um, you, you have, you have agreed in uh, pending physical with this player. And now I'll get a hundred texts saying, 
is this accurate? And as soon as somebody confirms it, then the next hundred texts are, can you help me with the terms? You know, and it's like, <laughs> this is, think, I mean, think about what it's like to be on the other end of this. Right, here's another story. I was at the winter meetings a few years ago, and I heard that a, a really prominent, big-name free agent was talking to a team. The player had come to the winter meetings, and he was talking to that team in person, right? And so I texted the general manager and said, hey, I heard this. Is this true? And he called me immediately, and he said, all right, here's the deal. This is like 9.30 in the morning, right? He said, here's the deal. It's true, but I need you to do me a favor. If you report this now, I'll, I'll have to spend like the next 10 hours dealing with it. So if you do me this favor, don't report it right away, and I won't tell anybody else. I won't let anybody know that this is true. And then when our meeting's over, I'll tell you basically what happened, and you'll have it, you'll have it and nobody else will have it. And, you know, there are people in my business who wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, they just, whatever they hear, they just fire out there on Twitter. But I'm, you know, I probably because I spent so much time in the newspaper business before there was Twitter, um, I, I still feel like I it needs to be right. It doesn't need to be stream of consciousness. And so I, I agreed to do that, and I wound up having a really good story because, incredibly, it didn't get out that whole day. But you don't think I sweat it? I was sweating it every minute until he called me back. Oh my God, my heart pounded all day long. But I did that because that's what we're doing to the people we cover. Uh -huh. um, I hadn't thought about it from that it, angle, actually. You know, just being the, the executive and having the phone just constantly buzzing the entire day. Constantly. And I, like, I hate to be that person. You know, I, I don't want to be one of the hundred. Mm -hmm. and, and so you build those relationships. So when something happens, you, you know, you know that there were there are people out there who will help you with it, and they won't take it personally that you texted them or you you know or you gave them a quick call or whatever. Um, that's why you build those relationships. You have to do it. Uh -huh. I mean, how do you feel about uh, just just the general Twitter culture of of uh, you know the information being so valuable and how I mean, like I'm I'm very curious to see like how this Twitter culture of of information being valuable um, influences young writers uh, because you know last off season especially there was there was a bunch of the the high school kids and the middle school kids breaking stories left and right and then there were kids who were, who were trying to do that and were just spewing wrong information just throwing stuff against the wall and hoping it sticks I mean how do you how do you see that that kind of culture <laughs> affecting uh, you know people my age and younger right well I mean here's what I wonder. Look, any, anybody who breaks a story, whether they're 14 years old or 80 years old, more power to you, man. Good work. But um, that 14-year-old or that 16-year-old or that 19-year-old who's trying to break that story um, has not put in the time to build those relationships the way I have. And if they have, it's on a certainly different level. And so uh, I value the way I've done it. You know, I hear... You know, I hear stories from the people I cover who say, yeah, I just got a, a, a text out of the blue from so-and-so. He goes to so-and-so college, and he <laughs> said to me, would you be my source? 
<laughs> he said, I don't know who the hell this guy is. Why would I be his source? Um, but, you know, and so you, you know, you do wonder if that's where the business is going. I, I always feel like I'm in it to do things that, that, you know, hopefully that are more substantial than just being the first to text about or to tweet about some somebody signing a minor league deal with the Rockies. You know, it's really – there, there are just so many different things that are great about the job and the business that that's like – it's not my goal in life to have MLB trade rumors say Jason Stark was the first to break that Joe Schmo had signed a AAA deal with the Rockies. You know, it's not that important to me. Uh, if it happens, cool, tremendous. <laughs> but that's kind of you – know, that's – what social media is is doing, how it's changing the face of our business. And I, I, I don't want to be, you know, one of those old dudes saying, hey, in my day, stuff was a lot better, because I don't believe that. Um, but I, I do think that the, you know, the speed of modern media is is changing the business in some ways, not for the better. Um, you know, I've had, you know, I've seen people whom I really respect um, tweet stuff that turns out to be wrong and then have to tweet that, you know, disregard that previous tweet or, you know, I, you know, normally I would have checked this out with another source, but I can't do that now in this world. Yeah, you can. You can. You know, if you're not sure it's right, then why are you putting it out there? You know, it better be very carefully worded. And so that's just, I guess that's my only worry about what social media is doing to our business. But I, you know, the best part about social media is not just the speed of it, uh, you know, the way you can, you can just get information so instantaneously, but the, the, the fact that it's so interactive. Look, there's a lot of knuckleheads out there, and there's a lot of haters and a lot of noise, and you have to tune that stuff out. But I'll just give you an example, right? Uh, I wrote a piece, or, you know, we're, we're taping this podcast. I wrote a piece that posted today on our site that said the Toronto Blue Jays are the best team in baseball up the middle. And I've been interacting with people all day long who say, no, they're not, the Royals are, or no, they're not, the Orioles are, or no, they're not, the Red Sox are, or, how can, you know, how can, if, if, you, if you're finding metrics that show this, uh, your metrics are wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, and it's it's fun to go back and forth and 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 give people a taste of, well, here's how I did this, here's how I reported this, here's why I think this, and you know, some people don't really care what you think. Some people really don't care that you, that you very carefully looked into it and thought about it and re- reported it and researched it. Um, they just think what they think, but it is a tremendous aspect to the world that you can have this kind of contact with people who are, you know, hopefully reading what you wrote, but are at least interested in what you think and what you say. Sure. And, you know, it creates a, this whole level of interest in all kinds of topics that was never there before. Mm-hmm. And it's fantastic. How have you seen your, your job change and your role at ESPN change since the, you know, the, the explosion of the internet and instantaneous information? We don't have enough time to, to, to go through all that, but um, how has it changed? It changed 
kind of the way I, I described earlier, and that is we tell the stories so many different ways now. I was at a game where where Doug Fister pitched, right? And uh, first adding a spring training, went down with a couple guys who cover the Astros, and we talked to Doug Fister, and, you know, I came back upstairs, and I told my one of my editors, all right, this is kind of what he said, this is what I thought, and we decided that rather than, you know, write a, a, a blog post on Doug Fister's first adding of spring training, that we could handle this with the ESPN Now feed. You know, we have an app called Shortstop that allows us to do what Twitter does, only with more than 140 characters. And I was able to kind of tell that story, say, hey, Doug Fister pitched today last year. His velocity, his average basketball velocity was down to 86.4 miles an hour. Uh, the lowest of his career, but today he was 87 to 90. And then here's a quote from Doug Fister, and bam, I just told that story in a way that didn't exist a year ago. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty cool. And uh, you know, along the way, uh, <laughs> today uh, Jake Marisnik and George Springer were allowed to drive to Clearwater, Florida, where the game was from Kissimmee. And on their way, they passed Dinosaur World in Plant City. Saw this big freaking Tyrannosaurus Rex, got off the highway, took a selfie of it, and posted it. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'd seen this before the game. Uh, A.J. Hinch, the manager of the Astros, had some funny thoughts about it. So I posted the photo again with his quotes. Then when Jake Ruther came out of the game, went down and talked to him. Uh, we laughed about it. Had a funny quote from him. We again posted the photo um, on our ESPN now and also Twitter and Facebook, and like, this is stuff like, where did it go once upon a time? But it's just part of a a little slice of the day of spring training that, you know, we can now tell these stories, and and they're just, they're a, you know, people have some level of interest in them. Uh, I've told you how Doug Fister pitched today. I've told you about some goofy thing that these players did on on their drive to the ballpark. And it's a little slice of life that we could communicate mm-hmm. with all these different media now that we never did before. Um, and so, like, I really was working on bigger pieces for down the road here today. But along the way, I, you know, I had, a pre- I had a presence on all sorts of different social media and our site through media that didn't exist not so long ago. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that would probably be the best way to sum up how the job has changed. Mm-hmm. And now I'm popping on your podcast. And, uh, <laughs> When, how long has that existed there, June? Uh, a couple months now. <laughs> okay, there you go. Couldn't have done that six months ago. <laughs> yeah. Hey, have you have you seen, uh, you know, with with a shorter shelf life for information in general and, and stories, uh, have you seen the the quality of and of the substance that you you've talked about change at all, or has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? Hmm. Uh, it's hard to really generalize because there's so many people out there doing great work now. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the cool things about it is that you know, there are so many avenues now for people who care about baseball to to write really interesting stuff and have it find an audience. Now, the sad part is the opportunities for them to get paid for doing it are fewer and fewer. But, I mean, when you think about, you know, all the different bloggers you, you might read now who you never read before and uh, how much incredible stuff is on fan graphs and, and baseball perspectives and hardball times and, 
all these different vehicles, that's the part of the business that I think has improved the most. You know, you just have so many more voices now who come from so many different perspectives and different backgrounds. It's tremendous. It's Uh great. Uh, And it's good for all of us to, to have that input. So that's probably the best part of it. Um, I mean, the, the, the really, uh, the most unfortunate part of it, though, is the decline of the newspaper industry. Uh, the newspapers that no longer send their beat writers, you know, first to the playoffs, then to the World Series, now even to spring training, um, don't think it's important enough. And so, you know, that's a, that's a loss of a, such a valuable source of information not to mention uh, a loss of opportunities for really talented people to to do what I did and have the jobs that I had and have the the opportunities that I had. So I'm 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 sad about that. That's the worst thing that's happened to the media over the, in recent years. I would say. Mm-hmm. Where do you where do you kind of see yourself in the next five to ten years as you uh, as you know the, the baseball world and the baseball medium you know continue to evolve. Uh, I'm not that smart. You know, I'm not, one thing I've learned is that I'm really bad at predicting just about everything. <laughs> and, um, you know, we always have this, uh, this joke in my office. I, you know, write these columns every year. Who's going to win the world series, do it in April, do it in October. And I, you know, I have like 20 friends at ESPN who, as soon as that, those columns run, they'll start texting me and emailing me with one word doomed right that's just because if i if i predict it it can't possibly happen so to try to predict where baseball is going where the media is going it's hard um but if we just look at the sport i think you know you mentioned that uh, the, the currency of information a long time ago and i know you didn't mean it this way but there's so much incredible information in the sport now, and so many really talented people who um, who look at the game from so many different perspectives and realize that there's so many ways to think it and rethink it and get better at it because you think it th- that way and because you can find those edges in so many different ways that that's changing the world. Uh, it's not just changing baseball, it's changing the world, but in baseball, you know, why do you think it's so hard to hit now? The pitchers know everything. They know everything about every hitter who steps in the box. And they, they know if I throw, that helps too, <laughs> right? But I mean, I'm just talking about information. Yeah. They know if I throw this pitch in this quadrant of the strike zone, I know exactly where this dude's going to hit it, and we're going to have somebody standing there with a glove. Uh-huh. He's he's got no shot, right? Uh-huh. And so that's just one level that this that this has taken. Um, I, you know, I had lunch today with a, a, a couple of guys from the Astros front office. One is Jeff Lunau, went to Wharton. You know, the, yeah. the other guy is one of his assistants who went to Cornell. Now, they hey, weren't Cornell. working in baseball. There you go. Hey, they weren't Cornell. working in baseball, what, 25 years ago? They are now. Uh, I'll give you another example. Uh, this, is, this is from last year in spring training. Okay, I'm, uh, I was in Pirates camp. First day, Clint Hurdle talking to the media after workout. And somebody asked him an innocent question about how much did he want to rest Andrew McCutcheon this year. And he gave an answer in which he said, you know, I was reading something about the Golden State Warriors, and they found that when their players play less, they produce more. 
And then he gave this answer and how it related to McCutcheon. And then about like two minutes later, this light bulb went off in my head and I said, you know, you mentioned the Golden State Warriors a couple minutes ago. You know, where, where'd you read this? What were you reading? I'm hoping he's going to say, hey, I read it on ESPN.com. But no, that's not what he said. He didn't want to tell me where he read it. So now that piqued my curiosity. So I went up poking around about this for the next three hours. And you know what I found out? That the Pirates had, had, had studied the Golden State Warriors. They studied wow. the great teams in every sport looking for what makes them great and trying to determine is there something that they do that translates to our sport. And so what Clint, Clint Hurdle read was this, in, this report that one of their people, their information people, reported, researched, assembled, wrote, presented to guys like him so that they could see if there was some lesson they could learn. And that's how we're rethinking baseball every day now in ways that we never did before. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's going to be the next 10 years, I think, how the use of information is going to change everything about the way we, people play baseball, about the way managers manage, about the way coaches coach, and about the way we write and talk about it in the media. Uh-huh. Information is king more than ever. Uh-huh. My last question for you. Where do you see yourself uh, just kind of in the next 10 years as a, as a reporter? Um, good question. <laughs> um, I mean, I love what I do, and I love evolving with the business, evolving with the sport, evolving with the times. And, I mean, uh, you know, I, we do things now, I, I, I mentioned a few of them, that didn't exist. They're now basic parts of our job, and they didn't exist a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. And so I wish I could tell you what that thing is going to be in five more years. Um, but that's the exciting part of the business for me is, you know, I've, like I, I've seen people I used to work with who said, ah, I can't blog all day or I can't tweet or I, I don't want to do that. And they just get out. Uh, it just energizes me. It invigorates me. I feel like change is good. Change is stimulating. So, I'm just I'm just interested in in riding the roller coaster, mm-hmm. and I love what I do. I've never stopped loving what I do, and I just hope I continue to love what I do for as long as I want to do it. Uh-huh. Uh, well, Jason, uh, thanks for taking the time. Have a good one. All right, thanks, man. Yeah, you too. Bye. Well, thanks to Jason Starr for coming onto the show this week. It's really, really appreciated. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. If you guys want to follow Jason on Twitter, he's at JasonST over there. Uh, and uh, he's a really great follow, really funny guy, really just a uh, great, great baseball writer. Uh, so make sure to go follow Jason. If you guys enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes uh, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a rating on iTunes as well. Uh, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, we're at BartoloPod. You can follow me on Twitter at IamJuneLee as well. Uh, thanks again to
to our sponsor, SeatGeek. And uh, next week, we have Lindsay Adler of BuzzFeed. She writes sports over there. Uh, we had a fascinating conversation just about uh, about being a woman in sports journalism and, and being a young writer in, in, in the industry today. Uh, so you guys uh, won't want to miss that conversation as well. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, if you guys have any guest suggestions, shoot us an email at doingitforbartolo.gmail.com. And until next time, guys, uh, we'll see you guys in the next one. Hope you guys have a good one. See ya. Your love is simple, baby. You've been on my mind yeah. since you're watching me. I do it all the time yeah. since you say you love me. It's just a fire. Yeah. It's just a fire.